Hello everyone, welcome to the Cinema One podcast. My name is Mark Woodridge and today is a very, very special podcast. This podcast is me interviewing a producer uh, from Adelaide, Australia, Christian Moliere. He is a, a film producer mainly known for The Babadook, uh, written and directed by Jennifer Kent. And uh, this interview is, was, uh, is a, uh, a TAFE assignment of mine. But the interview went so well and I loved it so much and we both loved it so much. And with Christian's uh, permission, of course, I was able to upload it to the Cinema One podcast. So uh, guys, sit back, relax and enjoy this interview uh, of um, uh, Christian Moliere, the producer of The Babadook. If you haven't checked it out, please go watch it. It's uh, on uh, YouTube. You can rent it out for 3 to $4. You can buy it on... Um, you can buy it as well on Blu-ray or DVD. And uh, yeah, there's going to be heavy spoilers for the film, of course, but I highly recommend checking it out. It is a horror thriller, so just be wary of that. And uh, yeah, it's uh, purely made in Australia. And um, just uh, bear in mind as well, this is this uh, meeting was done over Zoom. So Christian's quality of his uh, audio is a, a bit low compared to mine. But however, if you are interested and passionate about learning more about filmmaking, especially from a producer's And tell, tell, just before you start, tell us a bit about your background. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I've been studying filmmaking for, I'll, I would say properly for the last two years, but I studied media um, in high school over the last three to four years prior to, prior to graduating high school. Um, I kind of fell in love with filming after I edited a year nine short film, a suspense film that I had to make. And I kind of just found it very natural and just very easy to do. And I was like, oh, this is fun. And then the following year, I made a short film with my friends. And I was like, you know, what? this is something I think I want to do. And then year 11 and 12, mm-hmm. I focused on uh, properly making a film and how to work it and how to do it all. Mostly as a one-man band, which uh, was pretty hard. But um, I can see why you need a crew now. And uh, studying <laughs> uh, diploma and advanced diploma now in uh, TAFE in uh, Australia here in uh, WA. It's been um, really, really amazing, pretty much. And I've worked from I've worked on a short film as an editor. I love directing, uh, producing. I'm starting to get an interest in as well. And uh, yeah, I can't really see anything I don't find it interesting. Right. So, what is your ambitions at the, at the end of all of this? To where, where do you want to focus? I would like to focus in editing and maybe a bit of directing. Uh, I know directing is hard to get into, so it's not something I'm putting at the top of my list. Um, but it's something I'm yeah. definitely interested in. But editing, I really have a big fond of. And behind me, I've got a big editing suite as well that I, I use. Yes, I saw that back there. Yes. Well, that's a, it's, a, it's a work of getting into editing. Not many people do from, from editing into directing, but... Uh, uh, a friend of mine who's an editor who, who edited, who was an assistant editor on The Babadook, but edited Wolf Creek 2 and Relic that was just on recently okay. and I Am Mother. He's, uh, he's moving into feature directing as well. But oh. he was always, he was doing a short filmmaker who was making his own films, but as a profession, he was working as a visual effects editor and editor. Oh, wow. Um, so there is a way of, of doing, of combining both. That's very cool. Yeah, it's very nice. Um, yeah, can you tell me about you, a bit about yourself, Christian? Like, how did you start as a producer, and how did you get into this stuff? I almost fell into producing rather than any great design. But like you, uh, Mark, I was as a kid was really interested in filmmaking and was making films, animated films, stop motion animation, yeah, and uh, short drama films uh, through primary school and a little bit of high school. And at the end of high school, moving into uni, I started making my own short films again as a writer, director, producer, because no one else would do that sort of thing for me. And uh, as I moved through short films and, and music videos in my teen, late teens and 20s, found that I was becoming less interested in the writing and directing side of things and the, the detail that was required and the art that was required in directing and found that my skills were more suited towards producing, which is looking more at the big picture and being involved in every step of the process in a, in a more production, uh, more project management capacity, 
as opposed to the minutia of what color jacket is that person wearing and, yeah, of course. and those <laughs> that that became less and less interesting to me um, but it was good to have that background as a writer director to understand working with actors and what directors need and uh, and what writers need and the support that's required in all of those other those other areas so I find that that's a good skill to have as a producer is understanding what other what other key creatives around you need and being that support to them so uh, yeah through my 20s just started to focus more and more on producing and started to make I was doing more in the music video space and then in the early uh, probably about 20 years ago uh, the precursor to Screen Australia the AFC was running a one-hour uh, short feature uh, initiative and fortunate enough to produce one of those here in Adelaide uh, with with Damon Gamo, who you may remember from uh, 2040 and the the Sugar film. Yes, um, yes, yeah, I know And uh, we we're, were really lucky to get Sean McAuliffe as our supporting actor in that one, and that was a a good little film called Thirteenth House, and that opened the door for other producing, and I was able then to work with a director called Creve Stenders. Uh, who who made Red Dog most famously? Oh, yeah, I love that film. And yeah, so and Danger Close most recently. Yes, uh, he's looking to make a film, an ultra ultra low budget one take film oh, wow. without a script, so it was improvised. And uh, we got together and started talking and and worked with him on that for a, a couple of years, and that was that was made in the early 2007. It was a film called Boxing Day. Okay, and and well for us, it was in in, in quite a number of film festivals, won a few awards, and and uh, and Creve and I were fortunate enough to get sent to America with that film and present that to the Directors Guild of America, West Coast and East Coast branches as a as a um, as a screening, and and that opened the door for working with Creve again on another feature film called Lucky Country, which was a western with uh, Aidan Young and Toby Wallace, who's now in Baby Teeth. He was 12 when we, we first cast him, and that was that was his first film role. And uh, and the, that led to the Babadook and, and things that have uh, grown from, from there. So uh, it's, it wasn't an easy process. No. Uh, and, and I did fall into to producing straight out of school. It was a long, long process. And I, and I should also mention that the the back the backdrop to that is that I'm trained as a as a an accountant. So I did oh, a bachelor okay. of economics. So you're you're a businessman. <laughs> yeah, so I did a lot all through my twenties and early thirties. I was working as a, an accountant for one of the big big companies, and I still I'm still working as an accountant now. Wow. Uh, some some years on because that's a a good way of earning money while I'm developing projects and and. Uh, and, and financing projects and the, yeah, of the things that you need to, <laughs> that you don't get paid for. No, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I'm talking about like financing and all that and all those skills. What skills and knowledge do you think as a producer you need for a film crew? Look, there's so many different types of producer as well. Uh, but here in Australia, you tend to be involved in a lot of those aspects of production. So you're the creative producer or or development producer so yeah. that you work you find material and you work with writers and you work with directors and develop material over years at some sometimes uh, before you're in a position to finance so you're you're involved in that storytelling aspect and development aspect and and uh, help and financing that development as well so that you can pay writers and pay directors to work on projects um, and then as you move through that process, then you start looking, then you start having to change your hat and put on a financing and business hat to piece together the, the financing puzzle to, uh, to, to make that film or to, for that film to go into production. And that requires lots of different sources of money from government money that's, uh, that's uh, accessible through Screen Australia and the producer offset, state-based funding through SRC and Screen West in your case. And as well as international money and finding distributors locally here for Australia and just, and international sales agents which sell the rest of the world territories. And you could even be looking at uh, pieces of the financing puzzle with uh, uh, reinvestments or post-production uh, 
post-production companies coming on board or private equity or cash flowing cash flowing uh, international pre-sales all these sort of things that are that are, are needed and every film is unique you you don't start with a plan as to how you're going to be out we start with a plan but you it, Always yeah. the plan never goes ahead <laughs> no and and the plans uh, when you get to a point you can finance up to 90 95 percent of a project and you've got all of these pieces balancing like a jenga set mm. uh, as to how together and one piece falls out and the whole thing falls out yeah and you start again and so that that's happened on on a number of occasions on projects so it's a uh, it's uh, it's not for the faint of heart, and it's not for <laughs> it's not for people to get easily put off, put off or disappointed because it's uh, it's uh, it's challenging. Yeah, it and it's be. even more challenging now. Yeah, exactly. With COVID and everything, it's gonna be more challenging with the the the, the limitations that actors have to be with each other and the crew and everything that happens. And it's also just the landscape. Well, what, what's happening with cinemas? What's happening yeah. with? Uh, where are we seeing films and is is streaming going to become the new normal for, for everyone? Are we just going to be watching things at home? Yeah. Um, I don't know about you guys. We have, uh, there's about three or four different cinemas in Perth here and uh, we have Grand Cinemas, which is WA based and that's where I work. And we can't open because because we're mostly privately funded. We can't open without a, without a film and tenants getting pushed back every single time. We, we can't open without it. And uh, while yeah. other cinemas like Event and Hoyts, who are in Perth as well, they they're opened up because they're Australia wide and they have more money than us, which is a you know, of course yeah. a big thing. So it's just this big dynamic you can see between uh, companies and how see if we can even survive in the next few months. Yes, and we've seen here in Australia these bigger scale projects like the True History of the Kelly Gang. Yeah. Relic, that horror film in Sundance and I Am Woman in, in August, they're all been bypassing cinema and going straight straight into the streaming platform. Yeah. Kelly Gang had a couple of weeks in the cinema before before it was released on stand, but essentially it is uh, viewers find those films on 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 the streaming platform. Yeah. And uh, there's another one I, I'm done uh, straight to Amazon, um, the, the Paul Hogan film. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so this this landscape we've got is completely different. We we're, mm. we're we're being forced to change by COVID, but it was already happening anyway. That streaming platforms were were dominating the marketplace, and there's more and more of them, yeah. especially in America, and and starting to come here. So that gives us more opportunities as to how to finance film and where they go. Um, but there's a little bit of me and a little bit of the people I work with that just love the theatrical experience and love the the ability to show your film. Yeah, exactly. To an audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, I that's cool. I have a big plan next year for my 21st birthday. I I'm want to make a short film with my friends and um, instead of releasing it to uh, film festivals, which I had in mind, but it's going to be bigger than that, so I don't think you'll probably get in. Um, I want to show it at the cinemas and hopefully we can get like something booked out and do that. And that's all part of the experience. You want to sit down with your friends and family and watch it on the big screen. Something you've actually made is just totally worthwhile. And and you just know that from a viewing point of view, if you make films, well, say for instance, The Babadook, I've seen that in a number of cinema, uh, cinema audiences and there's something palpable about uh, watching a horror film and yeah. seeing the reactions of audiences uh, here and in America and other places, how how people really are engaged with what's going on in the cinema, and mm. um, to miss out on that because people are watching on on their iPhone or, or a computer screen is is I don't know. It feels like it's it feels like it's something missing. But uh, I, I, I there's also a part of me that says, well, that's the way that that uh, people consume films nowadays, and to get over it, and uh, as long as people are watching films. That's, that's the main thing. As long as people are watching your, your films and your projects and you're getting audiences for, for films uh, or TV series, then you're able to keep making stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, I was going to ask you next, Christian. Um, can you talk about how you commercialize your work and ideas, like the income and charging your work and how you find and operate like uh, scripts and whatnot as a producer? 
Okay. Well, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question because if I was trying to commercialize and make my, my life a viable, uh, an in, a viable income stream, I wouldn't be a filmmaker mm. because it's, it's way too hard. Um, the, I, <laughs> when I moved from accounting to filmmaking, uh, many years ago, I think I, I went from, I went to about a sixth of my salary in that in the first couple of years. Yeah, of so course. it took a eighty percent pay cut mm. to move into. So it's it uh, finance and money doesn't necessarily drive me. What what drives me is to tell stories, mm. but also to find material that I I really engage with and really want to tell those stories and find a way of financing them. Because as a producer, I don't get paid during development. Um, that's that's not where you get the money from. You pay. You get paid when the film is fully financed and ready to, and going into production. Yeah. So those five years, uh, five years in the lead up to that financing are just a, are unpaid, and you have to find a way of living during those during that time. Um, the the chance of a film making money and returning money to the filmmakers is really, really small. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so the way I don't think, I don't really think too much about backend, um, in the way of, uh, relying on it as a source of income. Mm. I'm more interested in, has this, has this project got the potential to return money to investors and, and, and us as key creatives? Is it something that we feel like has got an audience? And then that investment of, of time in development, the investment of making the film and fi- financing the film and going into production and then marketing the film will all be worth it. Yeah. But I, I don't try and spend a lot of time thinking, well, if this is my pay and then I'll spread it out over the eight, ten years I've worked on the film kind of makes it a, a very embarrassingly small amount of money. Yeah, of course. Per annum. But it's all about the passion pretty much. <laughs> if you've got the passion for it, then, pretty much. Yeah, then, then, then pretty you'll, much. you'll do well. Even if you don't do well, you, you still love it by the end of it. Yeah, you still uh, – you want to work on films, or, or this is my philosophy, if you want to work on films that you're still in love with from the moment that you started working on it to the, the many years afterwards uh, that you're still talking about it like the Babadook. Um, you've still got that passion for for that story, mm. so it, it probably is a lot easier if you if the skills that you've got as a as a producer or a craftsperson you can just put into something that you don't care about and move on to the next one. That that's that's not why I got into the business. No, of course. <laughs> yeah, no. Look, look at us you've now. I'm, I'm watched the Bubba Duck last night. I'm still talking about talking about it six years on. I know, and it's amazing when. Uh, uh, a film that you work on has that sort of impact and it's not uh, you dream of having those sort of projects and you hope that all of them are like that but it's not not the case it's incredibly I feel incredibly humbled uh, when that happened with the Babadook because it wasn't there wasn't a lot of I mean we all wanted the film to be as successful as it possibly could be and it was a great script and the director was fan, was fantastic and had a, a body of work in short films that incredible um but you never know you never you work as hard uh you work as hard making a bad film as you do making a good film yeah but you don't know, <laughs> you don't know whether it's going to work or not yeah of course uh and 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 i uh, i didn't even know that the film was going to work until the audience response at sundance yeah um I still loved the film. I still thought it was an incredible film and it was everything that uh, the director, Jennifer Kent, wanted it to be and it was her, it was entirely her vision. Yeah. Um, we all worked really hard to support that vision. But um, we had screened it for a test audience here in Australia before we went to Sundance and the figures weren't great. The figures were, the audience response was, felt pretty negative from our point of view. Oh, really? We, we played it. We played it in a commercial uh, cinema in Melbourne, so just one of the, one of the cinemas that was uh, in in a, a multiplex in a uh, a big shopping centre. So yeah. they were getting people, random people, to come in and, and watch the film, and they all had this piece of paper and they had to fill it out yeah, as they the were usual. going. And then at the end of it, the the the, uh, 
the people that organised the screening got people to come up the front and they did this Q and A, and there was basically nothing that they said that was positive in that Q and A. Really, they were, <laughs> they, they were tearing it apart. Far out. <laughs> and, was this uh, like during, like near the final cut, or really early? It was finished. It, it was finished. finished and delivered. Oh wow. Okay. Yep. So as uh, me more so than anyone else was was going along to Sundance thinking, well, it's great that it's got in. It's fantastic, um, and it's wonderful to be in Park City in the in the middle of winter at, at this amazing film festival that you could you only ever dreamed of going to, but had no idea that it was going to take off the way it did. Wow. Um, I say again that I I still was completely in love with the film and was so confident about how good the film was, but that didn't necessarily translate to whether the rest of the world thought it was great. No, of course. Um, it's a very different film when I watched it. It's, it's very much, it's very psychological. It really gets in your head and gets under your skin. And when I finished watching it, I'm like, that was a very different film to any of the horrors that you would see, but I can't fall asleep at night. Yeah. And that's a good film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad to see uh, Relic. Do, do really well. Mm. Uh, another female writer director, uh, Natalie James, and and her film following a similar path, getting into Sundance, and and uh, same US distributor who's doing a fantastic job over in the US, and she's getting so much attention for it. And and it's a slow boil, uh, moody and tense kind of film, but it's not a, a jump scare film. No, exactly. It feels Spaces above it all, so yeah, it's, it's great to see that these these films are coming out of Australia. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's what Australia's got for them. Even though not nothing major comes out of them, and a lot of people come here to make the films, partly whether it be like the Lego Movie or Mad Max and etc. We have something big here, Australia, especially even Adelaide. Like Adelaide's a small little like city, of course, like just like Perth, but we can still produce yeah. something that's quite amazing. Well, I've been really, uh, I've been really excited by some of the films that are coming out of Perth, and and been quite fortunate to be involved in some development oh, teams yeah. over in Screen West, and and seeing some of their short filmmakers move, uh, make some incredible short films, but then move into short, uh, move into feature filmmaking, like Zach Ilditch with uh, these final hours, and Ben Young with Hounds of Love, and yeah, and the producers. Hands of Love are friends of mine, Melissa and Ryan. And so it's fantastic to see this explosion of talent over there as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, where, where Perth is uh, often seen as a documentary space. There's, mm. there's a lot of really documentary filmmakers over there. But in the past few years with Screen West support, it's really exploded with these world-class filmmakers, writers, directors and producers. And and also being used as a as a location for films like Breath and uh, H for Happiness. So yeah, you know there's a lot of similarities between Perth and Adelaide in terms of the filmmaking community and the type of filmmakers that are coming out of it. Yeah, of course. Um, could I ask you as well? What legal and moral rights should you should we know about <laughs> when it comes to a producer? It's a big question. <laughs> uh, look at. Uh, a lot of the material that I work on is original drama scripts, so there's not uh, most of the things we we work through is just chain of title, making sure all of those things are clear, yeah. so that uh, we we can finance the film. So they're original stories, and and uh, they're not based on people's lives, or if they're based on a book, it's just acquiring the the right to to uh, translate those books into I, feature films. I believe the the Babadook. And, the Babadook was uh, originally Jennifer Kent's original uh, short film Monster, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So that was that was uh, in order to make sure that that was okay to to translate into a feature film is to cover off with the producer of the original short film that you have the right to turn that short into a feature length yes. uh, project. So um, you know you have to come to an arrangement with that producer who owns. It wasn't Jennifer that owned the short film. It was the producer that owned the short film. We had to come to an arrangement with that producer in order to develop the feature film version and in, in order for that to go into production. So those kind of things you do you do look at. Um, there's a lot of... I mean, the, the legal minefield of something like The Babadook is, uh, goes into so many different directions in terms of you remember that there's a television set on 
for most of the film. And, and there's so much content on that TV. Yeah. That, uh, every piece of content had to be had to be searched and had to be find the original owners and then uh, check whether you could uh, use that stuff. And and that was a process that I think I was I was doing most of that uh, that work on on the release um, on the rights to all of that material, and that took me months. Yeah, I was. I remember watching that, going like this. I remember your budget was like two mil, and I told my mum, and she was like, two mil. That's like that's so much money." And I'm like, "No, that's nothing. That's nothing for a film." But I was like, two mil, yeah. and you had to. Of course, most of it was set in one location with the house, but you had these yeah shots of yeah. the of the of these different uh, uh, television stuff on the TV, and I'm looking at yeah. going like, "This is like a Bruce Lee in it. This has got this. How'd you get rights for this? Did you have to pay or like?" You don't have to say you've got yeah. you have to pay for it, or like yeah. We had to either have documentation, so uh, so paperwork from the original producers mm. of all of that material. Um, a lot of it was uh, in the public domain, so okay. that, uh, that no one owned no one owned the material, and so we were able to go in and, and use that. So that there's a amazing horror film from the sixties. Uh, called Carnival of Souls, which mm. is uh, fortunately in the public domain for many, many years, and so we're able to use material from that. From that, but then there was an Italian horror film uh, that we used, a, a Mario Bava film, and we had to track down the producer. And the producer, the Italian producer, was based in New York, and we had to go and speak to him and show him what we were doing, and talk mm-hmm. about the film, and talk about how we were how we were going to use the material. And then we had entered into arrangement and fees and so on to to, uh, to be able just to get like a few film. shots of this film on on film. <laughs> so it, it's the I don't know whether you remember it's the the woman that the old lady that gets up off the bed and start and with the eyes that comes towards yeah. the screen and uh, uh, it's an amazing it's an amazing film and it really works for that for that particular moment. So yeah, of course, did crucial. Did you and Jennifer Kent or the crew like already know what you wanted, or did you kind of just figure it out? I just no, we didn't know what we were. It was uh, Jennifer and the editor Simon Jew who spent a long, long time searching for the exact right material and and uh, at the at the particular point in time in the film and just getting those getting those decisions right. I think we had to swap out a couple because we couldn't get uh, rights. But then Jennifer and Simon were able to go back and, and work through and find find something equivalent that we could access. Um, so some of it was in the script, Jennifer's original script, like the George Melius, uh, uh, all those old films from the early 19th, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, that we had to get. Um, but most of it we were able to, most of it, some of it was on YouTube, some of it was me searching through public domain um, material and, and providing stuff uh, and some of the stuff that was that, that Jennifer and Simon found and, and put in. And we even found right until the last minute, we, we were so, we were locked on a particular public domain film that we used and, uh, and the film was completely finished, completely locked off with sound, complete, everything done. And we then found the music on this particular clip was owned separately from the vision. Oh, really? The music was not copyright and owned by a, a major international conglomerate and the film was being cleared. Yeah. So we had no choice but to go and negotiate with this big international company for the rights to this tiny piece of music and ended up having to pay a fortune for it. Far out. The, the cost of doing it of removing it was bigger than the cost of actually paying for, for the rights. Wow, eh? Of so, course. That's, that's massive. <laughs> so I, I learned a lot of uh, how to deal with uh, rights to, to material on television. And, and I now look at tele- when, when people have put televisions on in, in scripts and there's particular material. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I do all the time as well. I haven't been to your extent, of course, but I've, I TAFE. We study a lot of legal copyright stuff and literally we can't shoot something without... Well, yesterday we did a practice shoot for our major projects coming up and we had to get a shot of a phone and like the, the camera be over the phone and the, the, the text will pop up and everything. And everyone's like, oh, 
I know this isn't going. This is just a practice. But should we be worrying about copyright? And everyone's like, yeah, we should be practicing. So we had to like start on the phone without showing any of the icons, just because yeah. just, just a single icon could get you messed up. And yeah, it's it's massive. Yeah, this is the stuff that uh, our production designer Alex Holmes uh, was involved with in because there's a mobile phone in the film. Yeah. So we had to get permission to use that mobile phone before we went into the shoot. Uh, Effie Davis's character reads a book at the start of the film. Had to get permission for the use yep. of that book. Um, the Big Bad Wolf short story that that uh, she reads to her son. We had to get the right to well. that. Wow, we uh, that version. Big Bad Every Wolf. little bit. Uh, all the artwork on her walls. Yeah, had to have. Um, if it, yeah, so. There are people that whose sole job in Hollywood is dealing with all the clearances yeah. associated with what you're doing um, to logos and brands and everything else that that happens to appear in your film. Um, yeah, it's 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 a minefield of <laughs> of stuff. And and I, as I said, I, I think I spent two or three months uh, after a uh, while the film was in post working with Jennifer and the other producer on trying to sort all of this stuff out. Wow, eh? um, and and it's a real detective job, yeah. And trying to find something, especially if it's in if it's on YouTube, because it could have come from anywhere. Yeah. Wow. Hey. On on that note, working with Jennifer, what was it like working with Jennifer Kent? Because I've heard about her film, The Nightingale, and that's done very well as well. And of course, The Babadook is the first uh, major one, but she's done short films prior to that. Um, what was it like working with her? The great thing about Jennifer is that she is so clear on her vision for a film and it comes from the script. She yeah. spent such a long time on script and getting the script right and, and really building the vision of her film from the script. So when I read The Babadook, I could, I, it, it was an incredible piece of writing and you can see the film. So, uh, and she was, she, her vision is very, very strong. So that as a producer, you have no, uh, problems trying to work out what she wants and what what the priorities are in in, in spending, and especially when you've got a very very small budget. So, I don't think I've worked with someone like Jennifer before that is so clear on her vision and so determined to 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 make it happen. Um, so she's she's a consummate filmmaker from as a writer and as a as a visual stylist and as a storyteller. Um, she's just quite amazing, and and she's also great, you know, to work with and talk with and throw ideas around, and and uh, um, even at the early stages when we were talking about the Babadook and visual references for it, she was really open to to other people in the production team and 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 uh, the designers and the, the cinematographers to come to come with with ideas and and help. Um, it was. You know, for for a first feature, it's 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 incredible that uh, it it was so almost perfect. Yeah, you know, it's a complete complete vision, and there's very and those kind of auteur filmmakers who are uh, have a have a complete vision and carry that vision from film to film are so rare. Yeah, um, you know, you knew from the very first meeting that that Jennifer was a uh, was a force of nature as a filmmaker and yeah. would go on to better things, bigger and brighter and better things. And you knew, knew that, uh, uh, even if the film was moderately successful, um, that she'd, she'd have a future as a filmmaker, both as a writer and as a director. Um, and it, that people would, would, uh, would take notice of her in, in America. That just those details that she had of her very, a clear idea of what the bubble would look like and what the book would look like and and finding the right uh, graphic designer or uh, artist and graphic designer to build that book and being really, really precise about what that was going to be. And from then looking at production design and, and costume design and hair and makeup and having this really limited palette of colours that people could work with so that... Uh, the whole film felt completely cohesive. Every element felt it felt uh, yeah. thought through. I didn't notice that. The whole film felt looked very dull and very bland and desaturated. And I'm like, this just works for the entire thing. Yeah, look, I, I think even at one point there was a discussion around black and white because 
because uh, Monster was shot in black and white. Mm. Um, it was practical for us as, as uh, uh, and for Jennifer as a first-time feature filmmaker to make a black and white film because there's limitations on how those sort of films can sell internationally and it would, would make it very difficult for us to finance the film on that basis. But you almost feel that Jennifer has made it, has, has decided and, and coordinated with her production designer and costume designer to make a black and white film in colour. Yeah, exactly. So that those, those colour elements really pop and they're, they're really striking when that, when they happen. So uh, it, it was a really clever idea to just have that uh, overall vision of the film and how clear that vision was mm. uh, to Jennifer. And then went all the way through to, as I said, talking about the excerpts on the television and being really precise about what they were being were. And she spent an enormous amount of time working with our, our sound designer and the sound design team on that particular palette of sounds that were there. And then interweaving the sound design with our composer, Jed Kurzel, so that the music and the sound felt like they were working hand in hand. Mm. In a, in, you know, so it feels really atmospheric, and there's a, um, and the music. Does, there's not a lot of overwhelming music. No, there like isn't. It comes out of the. So, you you, every step of the process, Jennifer was in charge of, and Jennifer knew exactly what she wanted, and she brought the right sort of people in that fit in with that 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 vision for the film. Um, so it's in that respect, it's a, it's really good for a producer because you always know where you are. You always know yeah. what you're trying to achieve, and you know what you, what you're working towards. Okay. Um, yeah, I think you've answered most of it. For the next question, I think you've answered most of it already. But can you give me an idea of how someone like myself could start finding potential employment and opportunities in the industry? The good part about the industry at the moment is that there's so many different ways of getting into the industry. Mm. Um. For me, it was working as an accountant and uh, and learning and, and making my own short films and, and taking them out to film festivals and developing my skills that way. That's still a path, a legitimate path for filmmakers is to, to work in the short film world and, and keep developing their skills in that way. But we see now that uh, um, other ways of getting into the industry, you see via YouTube and 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 content for social media. Yeah, the filmmakers with uh, my company and my business partner Julie Byrne has been working with uh, uh, the Racker Racker, which are an online um, oh Racker Racker yeah providers yeah I've I've been watching them for ages. Well, so Danny and Michael, the two the twin brothers, both of them worked on the Babadook. Uh, one of them was our runner, and one of them works as a camera department attachment. Oh, really? And, uh, okay. Uh, and I, I didn't know at the time, but they were making this amazing content uh, mm. and and getting noticed, and they were starting to build their uh, build build their fan base. And and Julie Byrne, uh, who was the line producer on the Babadook, and and as I said, my business partner, they worked with uh, uh, Julie on some online content for, for Screen Australia and some material for Foxtel, and developed them themselves as filmmakers. And now they're doing their first feature film. As, uh, yes, and they've just bypassed. They've jumped ahead of so many other filmmakers because they've developed an audience for their work. Yeah, um, of course. Which, so that's that's you're seeing that more and more is that people are, are coming out of the online space and uh, and getting attention. Yeah, I'm 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 using YouTube as a way to um, almost build a portfolio mm. for my stuff. So whenever, for example, you or someone wants to see what I've done, I just swing them over to my YouTube channel. And it's nothing like Rocka Rocka. Yeah. I'm not like making making anything all the time, but it's something small and minute that gets uh, dribbled out every now and then. Well, so even the Rocka Rocka stuff is is particular for their online audience, but they're very serious filmmakers. They want to make films. They love the Babadook and they love working on that. And they really saw that that's the type of films that they'd like to make. And yeah. in fact, their first feature film is going to be a horror film. Mm. Um, not like it's not like what they do online. It's a it's a different skill that they've got, but yeah. because they've developed such audience uh, around the world and and got Hollywood representation and the like on the strength of their YouTube material, they've they've kind of jumped ahead of everyone else. Yeah, of course. They've demonstrated that 
they're filmmakers that people will take notice of. So that's been good, um, great for them, and and they deserve it because they're really talented. Um, but you've seen that as as well in Hollywood is that there's all these filmmakers that are coming that have had a successful short film, uh, particularly in horror, that have then just gone straight into their first feature film. So the, the guy who did Lights Out made a short film. Yeah, David Sandberg. He's one of my favourite directors, actually. Yeah. So he made a two-minute short film with his wife in his apartment in, in Sweden, which got was the basis for Lights Out. Um, now he's made Shazam. The guy who took it. <laughs> And, and uh, he did one of the Annabelle movies and he's doing, I don't know what, what he's doing at the moment, something big. Yeah. And he just came out of uh, making a short film for, for YouTube. Um, the guys who did Mama and directed it started, there's a two-minute yeah. version of Mama online that, that Guillermo del Toro saw and, and off they go. Sam Raimi discovered a little film called Panic Attack on, uh, on YouTube made, I don't know, somewhere in South America. And that director went on to do um, the remake of Evil Dead as well as Don't Breathe. So there's these these filmmakers that have just, because they're getting attention for the skills that they bring to a short film format and, yeah. and it does what it says on the tin, it scares you, then they're off. They're, they're, so, uh, the, but that, not, that sort of method, I don't think would have worked with Jennifer. No. Or, or, or just... Or David Michaud, these filmmakers from from Australia that have that have uh, have got an amazing film careers now. The sort of films that they made don't necessarily just fit easily on YouTube as a as a horror short or as a, a yuck yuck funny comedy. Um, their their films are, uh, aren't aren't like that. So I think mm. it depends on what sort of filmmaker you want to be and and how and what your path is. But I'm 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 grateful that there's so many more, more ways to uh, get into the film industry unorth- by unorthodox means. You don't necessarily have to study at the film school and then make a short film with your funding body and then make a feature film. You can be making films. You can be making YouTube content and online content and developing an audience that way. Yeah. Um, so it's. I think there's uh, there's great opportunity. Yeah. Um, Talking about like uh, Jennifer again, how did – because she had made Mother and they got made into the Babadook, who met who? Did Jennifer have the script already and then saw you or vice versa? <laughs> uh, I would love to take credit for <laughs> seeing her and, and, and uh, catapulting her into the first feature film, but I can't. Uh, Jennifer want, was, I think, trying to make another feature film that didn't happen and then went a few years after Monster, went back to that material and saw that there was a way of, of uh, expanding it into a feature film format, but also exploring something else, something else dramatic. And she was really lucky to get selected into a, a lab in uh, in Rotterdam, Amsterdam, okay. the Binger Lab, which is a, a long-form development lab where you're working, working for, I think, about six months on a project uh, as a resident of... of uh, of, of that particular lab and you're working with all these amazing creative script developers and developing a project. So she was, she was lucky to, to get support to, to attend that lab. And, and, uh, uh, the Babadook came out of that lab and then she met the other producer, Christina Seaton, who worked with her on, on subsequent drafts and took it to the point of getting, getting finance. Um, and then I came on board when they were looking for a South Australian producer and production company to help them realise the film um, because they were looking at South Australia as a location and it made sense to to work with a, a local producer on on that particular film that had skills in low budget. So that's how I met Christina and Jen and, and we all got on well because we shared the same vision for the film but also... Jennifer recognised in me that I was a huge horror fan and, and uh, had a, a good knowledge of horror cinema and uh, and understood a lot of the references that she'd made in the film and her, her influences and we could talk on that that level as well. So uh, hopefully could add something to, to, to the project as well, not just not just mechanical production skills but creatively uh, help with the vision of that film. So that's how we all got together and... Uh, and uh, the rest is history. Wowee. Yeah, that's great, Christian. 
Um, I just got I got a real quick question actually about the film. Um, there's this shot. I think the very beginning or like very early in the film, there's a shot in which uh the main actress is like at, at the camera, and she's falling onto the yeah. bed and then just like lays into bed. Yeah. How did you do yeah. that? <laughs> do you, can you answer that at all? I think I can. I think I, I mean it never appeared in the um it never appeared in the extras. But there's two scenes where she falls onto the bed mm. and both of them are done differently. Uh one of them is done by cables where the bed is on the floor of the studio and we uh, with with a crane lower the actress onto the bed. Uh load Essie onto the bed and then had to wipe out all of the uh all of the wires of course, that were, yeah. were holding her as she went down. But I think the second one, um, and, and I, I don't know who came up with the idea. Uh, I know it was somewhere Jennifer and the stunt and practical effects team came up with this idea of that, uh, uh, of actually doing it um, vertical. So the bed was standing up vertical. Effie was standing up, it was vertical. She was on a, um, a little trolley and the bed, it was on one side and the, the camera and the trolley were together and we moved the camera and trolley towards the bed. Ah, okay. And then she, and then she land, lands on the bed. <laughs> yeah. But it's all split so it feels like she's falling down mm. as opposed to going across. No, so yeah, because uh, watching the film as well, I was looking at it going, a lot of this stuff you can very tell it's, a, of course, a low-budget film. And, of course, $2 million <laughs> doesn't sound like a lot, but in filmmaking that's almost nothing. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's very it, yeah, it's it's very good to see a especially Jennifer and yourself and a, a crew like this, of course, having a lot of money to work on a film, but seeing it done in a very practical and efficient way that that's just inspiring. It's, it's, it all felt so very lo-fi as well. Like mm. you had to, you couldn't use uh, you couldn't use um, uh, CG. No. all the time and you had to do, you had to think of everything in a practical way of how can we do this practically that achieves the same the same result because if this was done in Hollywood we'd be we'd have green screen all around us and we'd be uh, uh, it would all be done like that yeah. this was how can we put in a studio using kind of a camera trolley as, as unsophisticated as that to make to make things work and it's the same with that uh, the car rig at the start of the film where there's the car accident and how Essie looks like. Uh, Essie is going round and round and the car's being spun. Um, well, the, one of the, the stunt team and practical effects team designed a rig and we put a car into the middle of this circular rig. Uh, it wasn't mechanic, mechanicized or, or it was, didn't have a, an engine to it. It was just a bunch of uh, crew pulling this round thing yeah spinning her around as throwing glass into the oh wow <laughs> into it and it tumbled and tumbled and tumbled and it looks it looks fantastic when it you're does. there on set seeing it all come together and and how safe it was and 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 uh but but you got the right look and the right sense of gravity because Effie was upside down yeah exactly there's also, and, I and think the, the yeah, the glass as well. I think the the Bubba yeah. Duke as well in a few shots was practical. The one where he comes through out of the kitchen from the um the, the darkness looks like he's just like oh, being my... rolled along. Yeah, probably the same camera cart as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, all of that stuff with the Bubba Duke was uh, was practical as, as we could possibly do. Uh, so we can do wire removals with. Uh, but most of it was trying to think of how do we do this practically, and so the team, the the practical effects and stunt team, working with Jennifer, working with the production designer of well, this is what it says in the script. How do we do this, and what would look great, and what would what would give the the right impression for, for this, and and they did that time and time again with some of the the, the shots in the film, and some some had to be augmented quite heavily in post because they didn't quite work in the way that we were that Jennifer wanted them to. Yeah, of course. But you wouldn't notice. No. You wouldn't notice which weren't which weren't done practically. Um it, it, most was done like that and lots of wire wire effects as well. <coughs> and I think that's what happens when you when you make a film at a low budget and you've got a crew that are there 
because they believe in the film and they believe in the filmmakers and you know they're not doing it for the paycheck they're doing it because of the craft and and so everyone was thinking about well what if we did this what if we everyone brought in ideas for, for how things could work um and how how we could make things happen i mean we didn't have an actor playing the babadook it was played by one of the art department staff oh really it was easier for and he was a really tall guy so he was perfect yeah we didn't have to hire an actor um but because he was part of the, part of the crew, part of the production design team, we could put him in the costume, wheel him in, do the do the effects, and then wheel him out again, and and uh, he became our Babadook. Oh wow, that's cool! Actually, I didn't know that. <laughs> he doesn't speak, so no, of he course just has he to just the stands there. Yeah. <laughs> now it's really great, yeah. Christian. It's really great to hear. Um, look, that's most of my questions pretty much done. Um, is there anything else you would like to ask me? I think we had that chat at the start, yeah. didn't we? That, uh, but no, no, I'm, no, that that was all great. Um, thank you very much for, for the interview. And hopefully I've answered the questions you need me to answer. No, you definitely have and, and more as well. It's great. And hopefully I haven't given away any secrets for, for the Babadook that, uh, that I've... Oh, no, that's right. <laughs> I'll, if, 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 if this does go online or whatever, I'll, I'll let people know that it'll, uh, it'll be uh, spoilers for the Babadook. And they should have seen it by now, to be honest. No. Well, it's, uh, spoilers for the storyline, that's fine. I, I, uh, we didn't have a lot of uh, EPK material, so no one was filming all of these wonderful visual effects and how creative the team were in realising some of this stuff, which is a shame um, because it was really, I still think so fondly on those, those kind of elements of the film and how it worked and how everyone just mucked in to try and make these things happen. Yeah, of and, course. And did it in a way that it cost nothing to do. No, yeah, definitely. Um, now it's great, Christian. Um, before we all finish, before we finish up, is there any any way we can get a little sneak peek of what you're doing next? Uh, it, um, I've got so many different projects on the go. I, I don't really know what's going to happen next. Um, okay, I'm work, working with a production company out of the US, and this was one of those fortunate things that that the Babadook opens doors in places like that. So I'm working with a producer over there, developing a, a horror film that we're hoping to shoot here in Australia, either later this year or early next year, uh, that we're piecing the financing together for. That's another haunted house movie. Okay. Which, uh, not, not the same as the Babadook, but uh, in the same, in the same general area. Yeah. And, uh, so that's hopefully next. And a couple of other things are working with some Americans on as well. Some TV stuff uh, too, which trying to uh, get some TV stuff going because that seems to be what um, streaming giants and everyone's interested in is television material, yeah, of course, film drama. Um, but really, I, I guess we've just got to emerge from from COVID first and uh, or, or uh, work through all of those risk things before we can get back into production. Yeah, so hopefully something, one or two things for next year. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, it's great, Christian. Thank you very much for your chat. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to talk to you. Yes, thank you very much, Christian. I will keep in contact with you in the future and uh, I'll catch you later.